0: Well, folks, i done messed up, and now it's time to fess up. I posted the wrong episode to Ken Reads the Classics, and I apologize. Uh, I'm going to now post the right, correct episode to Ken Reads the Classics. It's a wonderful book, uh, a series of short stories, which you'll hear in the intro. Once again, please accept my apologies and enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. I know it's been a while since I've podcasted or sent anything out, and I knew it was time to get back into business. I've been doing a lot of live theater and um, some live performances with my guitar, Jane, and my other guitar, Carlota. Anyway, um, I'm going to do a little bit of a twist. I'm going to read some great novels but uh, it's not going to be necessarily a straight read. I may um, say something or allow myself to enjoy this read a little bit, and maybe you'll enjoy that too. So today, with that in mind, I'm going to read a book, uh, a series of short stories called Nonsense Novels by Stephen Leacock. And so without any further ado, this is Nonsense Novels by Stephen Leacock. So I'll start with the preface. The author of this book offers it to the public without apology. The reviewers of his previous work of this character have presumed, on inductive grounds, that he must be a young man from the most westerly part of the western states, to whom many things might be pardoned as due to the exuberant animal spirits of youth. They were good enough to express the thought that when the author grew up and became educated, there might be hope for his intellect. This expectation is of no avail. All that education could do in this case has been tried and has failed. As a professor of political economy in a great university, the author admits that he ought to know better, but he will feel amply repaid for his humiliation if there are any to whom this little book may bring some passing amusement in hours of idleness or some brief respite when the sadness of the heart or the sufferings of the body forbid the perusal of worthier things. Stephen Leacock, McGill University, Montreal. 1. Maddened by Mystery, or The Defective Detective The great detective sat in his office. He wore a long green gown and half a dozen secret badges pinned to the outside of it. Three or four pairs of false whiskers hung on a whisker stand beside him. Goggles, blue spectacles, and motor glasses lay within easy reach. He could completely disguise himself at a second's notice. Half a bucket of cocaine and a dipper stood on a chair at his elbow. His face was absolutely impenetrable. A pile of cryptograms lay on the desk the great detective hastily tore them open one after the other solved them and threw them down the cryptogram shoot at his side there was a rap at the door the great detective hurriedly wrapped himself in a pink domino adjusted a pair of false black whiskers and cried come in his secretary entered ha said the detective it is you he laid aside his disguise sir said the young man in intense excitement a mystery has been committed ha said the great detective his eye kindling is it such as to completely baffle the police of the entire continent they are so completely baffled with it said the secretary that they are lying collapsed in heaps many of them have committed suicide so said the detective "'and is the mystery one that is absolutely unparalleled "'in the whole recorded annals of the London police? "'It is. "'And, I suppose,' said the detective, "'that it involves names which you would scarcely dare to breathe, "'at least without first using some kind of atomizer or throat gargle. "'Exactly. "'And it is connected, I presume, "'with the highest diplomatic consequences— so that if we fail to solve it, England will be at war with the whole world in sixteen minutes? His secretary, still quivering with excitement, again answered, Yes. And finally, said the great detective, I presume that it was committed in broad daylight, in some such place as the entrance of the Bank of England, or in the cloakroom of the House of Commons, and under the very eyes of the police... Those, said the secretary, are the very conditions of the mystery. Good, said the great detective. Now wrap yourself in this disguise. Put on these brown whiskers and tell me what it is. The secretary wrapped himself in a blue domino with lace insertions. Then, bending over, he whispered in the ear of the great detective, The prince of Württemberg has been kidnapped! The great detective bounded from his chair as if he had been kicked from below. A prince stolen, evidently a Bourbon, the scion of one of the oldest families in Europe, kidnapped. Here was a mystery indeed worthy of his analytical brain. His mind began to move like lightning. Stop, he said. How do you know this? The secretary handed him a telegram. It was from the prefect of police of Paris. It read, The Prince of Württemberg, stolen, probably forwarded to London, must have him here for the opening day of exhibition. One thousand pound reward. So, the Prince had been kidnapped out of Paris at the very time when his appearance at the International Exposition would have been a political event of the first magnitude. With the great detective, to think was to act, and to act... "'was to think. Frequently, he could do both together. "'Wire to Paris for a description of the prince.' "'The secretary bowed and left. "'At the same moment, there was slight scratching at the door. "'A visitor entered. "'He crawled stealthily on his hands and knees. "'A heartthrug thrown over his head and shoulders disguised his identity.' "'He crawled to the middle of the room. "'Then he rose. "'Great heaven! "'It was the Prime Minister of England! "'You!' said the detective. "'Me!' said the Prime Minister. "'You have come and regard the kidnapping of the Prince of Württemberg?' "'The Prime Minister started. "'How did you know?' he said. "'The great detective smiled his inscrutable smile. "'Yes!' said the Prime Minister.' "'I will use no concealment. "'I am interested, deeply interested. "'Find the prince of Württemberg, "'get him safe back to Paris, "'and I will add five hundred pounds "'to the reward already offered. "'But listen,' he said impressively "'as he left the room, "'see to it that no attempt is made "'to alter the marking of the prince "'or to clip his tail.' "'So, to clip the prince's tail,' "'the brain of the great detective reeled. "'So! A gang of miscreants had conspired, too. "'But, no, the thing was not possible.' "'There was another rap at the door. "'A second visitor was seen. "'He wormed his way in, "'lying almost prone upon his stomach "'and wriggling across the floor. "'He was enveloped in a long purple cloak.' he stood up and peeped over the top of it great heaven it was the archbishop of canterbury your grace exclaimed the detective in amazement pray do not stand i beg you sit down lie down anything rather than stand the archbishop took off his mitre and laid it wearily on the whisker stand you are here in regard to the prince of Wurttemberg." the archbishop started and crossed himself "'Was the man a magician?' "'Yes,' he said. "'Much depends on getting him back, "'but I have only come to say this. "'My sister is desirous of seeing you. "'She is coming here. "'She has been extremely indiscreet, "'and her fortune hangs upon the prince. "'Get him back to Paris, "'or I fear she will be ruined.' "'The archbishop regained his mitre, "'uncrossed himself, "'wrapped his cloak about him, and crawled stealthily out on his hands and knees, purring like a cat. The face of the great detective showed the most profound sympathy. It ran up and down in furrows. So, he muttered, the sister of the archbishop, the countess of Dashley, accustomed as he was to the life of the aristocracy— Even the great detective felt that there was here intrigue of more than customary complexity. There was a loud rapping at the door. There entered the Countess of Dashley. She was all in furs. She was the most beautiful woman in England. She strode imperiously into the room. She strode imperiously into the room. She seized a chair imperiously. "'and seated herself on it, imperial side up. "'She took off her tiara of diamonds "'and put it on the tiara holder beside her "'and uncoiled her boa of pearls "'and put it on the pearl stand. "'You have come,' said the great detective, "'about the Prince of Württemberg. "'Wretched little pup!' said the Countess of Dashley in disgust. "'So a further complication.' Far from being in love with the prince, the countess denounced the young bourbon as a pup. You are interested in him, I believe. Interested, said the countess. I should rather say so. Why, I bred him. You witch, gasped the great detective, his usually impassive features suffused with a carmine blush. I bred him, said the countess, and I've got ten thousand pounds upon his chances. So no wonder I want him back in Paris. Only listen, she said, if they've got hold of the prince and cut his tail or spoiled the markings of his stomach, it would be far better to have him quietly put out of the way here. The great detective reeled and leaned up against the side of the room. So the cold-blooded admission of the beautiful woman for the moment took away his breath. Herself, the mother of the young Bourbon, misallied with one of the greatest families of Europe, staking her fortune on a royalist plot, and yet with so instinctive a knowledge of European politics as to know that any removal of the hereditary birthmarks of the prince would forfeit for him the sympathy of the French populace. The Countess resumed her tiara. She left the secretary re-entered. I have three telegrams from Paris, he said. They are completely baffling. He handed over the first telegram. It read, The Prince of Württemberg has a long, wet snout, broad ears, very long body, and short hind legs. The great detective looked puzzled. He read the second telegram. The Prince of Württemberg is easily recognized by his deep bark. And then the third. The Prince of Württemberg can be recognized by a patch of white hair across the center of his back. The two men looked at each other. The mystery was maddening, impenetrable. The great detective spoke. Give me my domino, he said. These clues must be followed up. Then pausing while his quick brain analyzed and summed up the evidence before him. A young man, he muttered, evidently young since described as a pup, with a long wet snout, ha, addicted obviously to drinking, a streak of white hair across his back, a first sign of the results of his abandoned life. Yes, yes, he continued. With this clue I shall find him easily. The great detective rose. He wrapped himself in a long black cloak with white whiskers and blue spectacles attached. Completely disguised, he issued forth. He began the search. For four days he visited every corner of London. He entered every saloon in the city. In each of them he drank a glass of rum. In some of them he assumed the disguise of a sailor. In others he entered as a soldier. Into others, he penetrated as a clergyman. His disguise was perfect. Nobody paid any attention to him as long as he had the price of a drink. The search proved fruitless. Two young men were arrested under suspicion of being the prince, only to be released. The identification was incomplete in each case. One had a long, wet snout, but no hair on his back. The other had hair on his back, but couldn't bark. Neither of them was the young Bourbon. The great detective continued his search. He stopped at nothing. Secretly, after nightfall, he visited the home of the prime minister. He examined it from top to bottom. He measured all the doors and windows. He took up the flooring. He inspected the plumbing. He examined the furniture. He found nothing. With equal secrecy, he penetrated into the palace of the archbishop. He examined it from top to bottom. Disguised as a choir boy, he took part in the offices of the church. He found nothing. Still undismayed, the great detective made his way into the home of the Countess of Dashley. Disguised as a housemaid, he entered the service of the Countess. Then at last a clue came which gave him a solution of the mystery. the Countess's boudoir was a large framed engraving. It was a portrait. Under it was a printed legend, the Prince of Württemberg. The portrait was that of a dachshund. The long body, the broad ears, the unclipped tail, the short hind legs, all was there. In a fraction of a second, The lightning mind of the great detective had penetrated the whole mystery. The prince was a dog! Hastily throwing a domino over his housemaid's dress, he rushed to the street. He summoned a passing hansom, and in a few moments was at his house. I have it, he gasped to his secretary. The mystery is solved. I have pieced it together. By sheer analysis, I have reasoned it out. Listen, hind legs, hair on back, wet snout, pup, eh, hey, what? Does that suggest nothing to you? Nothing, said the secretary. It seems perfectly hopeless. The great detective, now recovered from his excitement, smiled faintly. It means simply this, my dear fellow. The prince of Württemberg is a dog, a prize dachshund. The Countess of Dashley bred him, and he is worth some twenty-five thousand pounds, in addition to the prize of ten thousand pounds offered at the Paris dog show. Can you wonder that, at that moment, the great detective was interrupted by the scream of a woman? Great heaven! The Countess of Dashley dashed into the room. Her face was wild. Her tiara was in disorder. Her pearls were dripping all over the place. She wrung her hands and moaned. They have cut his tail, she gasped, and taken all the hair off his back. What can I do? I am undone. Madam, said the great detective, calm as bronze. Do yourself up. I can save you yet. You? Me? How? Listen, this is how. The prince was to have been shown at Paris, the countess nodded. Your fortune was staked on him, the countess nodded. The dog was stolen, carried to London, his tail cut and his marks disfigured. Amazed at the quiet penetration of the great detective, the countess kept on nodding and nodding. And you are ruined? I am, she gasped and sank to the floor in a heap of pearls. ''Madam,'' said the great detective, ''all is not lost.'' He straightened himself up to his full height. A look of inflinchable unflexibility flickered over his features. The honor of England, the fortune of the most beautiful woman in England, was at stake. ''I will do it,'' he murmured. ''Rise, dear lady,'' he continued. ''Fear nothing. I will impersonate the dog.'' "'That night the great detective might have been seen "'on the deck of the Calais packet-boat with his secretary. "'He was on his hands and knees in a long black cloak, "'and his secretary had him on a short chain. "'He barked at the waves exultingly "'and licked the secretary's hand. "'What a beautiful dog,' said the passengers. "'The disguise was absolutely complete.' The great detective had been coated over with mucilage, to which dog hairs had been applied. The markings on his back were perfect. His tail, adjusted with an automatic coupler, moved up and down responsive to every thought. His deep eyes were full of intelligence. Next day, he was exhibited in the dachshund class at the international show. He won all hearts. Quel bel chien, cried the French people. Ach, vas ein dog, cried the Spanish. The great detective took the first prize. The fortune of the countess was saved. Unfortunately, as the great detective had neglected to pay the dog tax, he was caught and destroyed by the dog catchers. But that is, of course, quite outside the present narrative and is only mentioned as an odd fact in conclusion.